a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of, because of your foes, to still the enemy and the adventure. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning. Glad to see you here this morning. Thanks for joining us. It's uh, nice to have a crowd in the room. Uh, and uh, we're still, I'm still uh, really enjoying that. It's been a few weeks now, and uh, we want to pray that the Lord will continue to uh, protect us from that uh, grave disease that's out there in the world, and uh, that we'll continue to be able to meet together as we are. And uh, it is as the Lord designed. We are supposed to meet together in face-to-face groups in the body of Christ. As Scripture says, uh, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so uh, we're glad to be able to do that. Uh, If you have been around International Bible Church really much at all, you would hear us talk about what worship is from time to time really almost every week. We'll say something like, uh, here's what worship is. And when we do that, we always refer to this text in Romans chapter 12. And uh, since we finished our uh, series through the book of John, uh, it seemed like an opportunity to me to sort of talk about what the church is and what we do and uh, why we do it. And so I've decided to take a few weeks to talk about Romans chapter 12, the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. That's right, we're going to take several weeks to talk about two verses. And that's because these are important verses. And it is in these verses that we uh, are told by the apostle what is Christian worship. Uh, And also why that ought to be important to us. And so I'm just going to, I printed these two verses in your bulletin, by the way, in the notes section. And I, I just want to read them. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's some really great words in this text. One of those is transformed. 
I don't know if you've ever felt the need to be transformed. This word is uh, the word metamorphosis. That's why the title metamorphosis. The word is metamorphosis, and uh, in English we use this word, which is just the Greek word that is in the text of this scripture, metamorphosis. In English we use this word to talk about what caterpillars do. Well, here's the thing about caterpillars. They don't actually do anything. This is something that happens in the life of a caterpillar. Well, they do, sorry, they do a few things. They, they make a thing called a cocoon. And they go inside the cocoon. I don't know, there's probably some biologists that know what's going on inside the cocoon, but I don't. Except that it is a thing we call metamorphosis. A change of form. And what goes into the cocoon is entirely different from what comes out at the end of the process. That's the word here. What God is working in the life of each one of his children is a metamorphosis, a transformation, so that what we are in the end is some kind of entirely new human being. Now, that's the promise of this text. That's the promise of the New Testament. And what I want to do is start at the beginning and see how we get there. So today we're going to only start talking about this. And today we're going to talk about the word therefore in this text. Therefore. That's the first word, so we're going to start with the first word, and we're going to go bit by bit through this whole text, and then in a few weeks we'll have some kind of understanding about this process of the Christian life, this transforming worship. Well, if you think about the word therefore, the word is kind of a a verbal hinge. It connects. It's a connecting word. And it's giving us the reasonable consequence of what has come before. What, he's, what we mean when we say therefore is I could give you like a list of things that are true and then say therefore this also is true. Or therefore, the, here's something you should do in response to what you've learned. That's exactly how the word is functioning here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Therefore, in other words, 
you shouldn't start where we're starting. Because we don't know what the therefore is there for. Yet, so that's where we're going to start. The therefore is everything Paul has said in the whole book of Romans up until now. Now I guess you can see why this might take us a while. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to only spend two Sundays on therefore, and I'm going to teach you the whole book of Romans, half of it today and the other half next week. Well, the two halves of this part that comes before chapter 12. So today we're going to talk about the book of Romans from chapter 1 through chapter 5. Because that is what's there that we should respond to in what's in Romans chapter 12. It's a giant statement of things that are that are true. It is in the first part of the book of Romans, there's actually almost nothing in there that is any kind of thing you must do. There's no practical instruction. It's all just things that are true. And it is on the basis of those things that are true that Paul gives us something to do here in chapter 12. And really for the rest of the book of Romans, the rest of the book of Romans from this point onward is an elaboration of what's in the first two verses of chapter 12. That means he sort of spells out what he means by this. So, let's go back to chapter 1. I hope you have a Bible with you and you can sort of follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to look at one while I'm talking, there's a big stack of them back there on the table. Those are free, by the way, so if you need a Bible, you can take one of those with you. So, what is therefore about? The first thing we want to find, we're going to go all the way to chapter 1, where there's a sentence, thank you very much, where there's a sentence that tells you what the whole book of Romans is about. And that sentence is in verse 16. Romans 1, 16. And I'm going to read verse 17 also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Wow, that's already quite a statement, isn't it? The gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection, well, it's beyond that, the incarnation, perfect righteous life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession, promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that good news is the power of God. And that power is for a purpose. Salvation. For salvation. 
for salvation. That word salvation, by the way, means rescue. It is the word you would use if you were a speaker of ancient Koine Greek for uh, grabbing someone off the tracks who was about to get run over by a train. You would say, you saved me. You'd use this word. That's what it means. There's a doom over us. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation from that catastrophe. We'll have some more to say about what the catastrophe is here in a second. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Now, by the way, saying that like that, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, is a way of saying to the Jew, God's historic chosen people, and to everyone else as well. For in it, how is it the power? How is the gospel, the power for salvation, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, or in response to it by faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. You could translate the second part of that, the, or the conclusion of that verse where he's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. You could also translate it like this, but the righteous by faith shall live. So, the theme of the book of Romans, here's my summary statement. You can evaluate it based on what we just read. But this is how I'm summarizing the good news. The theme of the book of Romans is the good news of the uncovering of the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ, seen by faith, received by faith, the power of God for salvation. I can see why that would be called good news. The good news. And Paul is writing to the Roman church, a group of people who have already received the good news because he hasn't been able to be there with them yet. But he's concerned that they would know the good news, the good news, the good news, <laughs> and really get it. And so what you have in the whole book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's, well, they, you could call it his master work, his declaration and elaboration of this gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the, the meaning and significance of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would have trouble finding a better resource than the book of Romans. 
And of course, the whole New Testament, of course, the whole Bible is about that. But here you have it captured, concise, and complete, and a very true and complete description of what exactly has happened in the person of Jesus Christ and why that should matter to any of us. So, we've seen the theme is the power of God for salvation. And we might say, what's the train? To rescue someone, what's the train? (laughs) We are being yanked away from. Well, it's right here in the next verse. That's convenient. It says here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the question is, what's the... What's the thing we're saved from? The answer to the question is God. Now, I doubt you hear that very often whenever you've gone to church, that God's, we're announcing God's salvation and the thing he's saving us from is him. But that's what that text says. The wrath of God. So, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is a disregard of God. A failure to respect God as God. In fact, that's what he just says right here in this text. Even though, this is in verse 21 now, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Now, I think the they in this text is specifically referring to Adam and Eve, but it is also referring to every last human being. That's how we've done. We refuse to recognize God as God and honor Him as God. That's ungodliness. It's a disrespect for the things of God. God, of course, is the creator of all, including us, the giver of life to all that have life, including us. And we actually were created in his image according to his likeness in order to reflect his glory in creation. So for us to Ignore him is for us to reject the purpose for which he made us. Well, it's a failure of worship. It is not worshiping. Ungodliness, disregard, disrespect for the things of God, and unrighteousness, 
which in my mind is the natural consequence of ungodliness. Why are you unrighteous? Because you're ungodly. Because God is the source of all righteousness. In uh, is it Isaiah or Jeremiah, <laughs> sorry, uh, the scripture tells us to, uh, that all, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. That is, even when you do the right thing, it's unrighteous. Why? Because you're doing it apart from Him. That's why. You see, everything I do all the time in separation or alienation from God is unrighteous. Even when it's righteous, it's unrighteous. Even when I tell the truth, if I do that without the source of truth, it has no standing before Him. It's a bit of a fake. A sort of fake honesty from time to time in my alienation from God. This is hard. And God, the word here is wrath. God will not let it stand. In his own righteousness. And we've read that here in the book of Romans, what has happened in the gospel is the revelation of his righteousness. That comes in two forms. One is the execution of his wrath. That's what salvation is from. Ungodliness, the wrath of God against all ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppression of the truth. You see that here? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you look across the page in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. <laughs> chapter 3, the famous verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the purpose of God's creation of humanity. We're, called, we're the ones who are made in His likeness in order to bear His image, to be the exposition of God in the creation. And in our alienation from him, we have disrupted that purpose. And we go around pretending that it, that isn't true, 
or that it doesn't matter. We go around claiming to own ourselves, even though we are created beings. So, the wrath of God is revealed against all of that. And if you read on in the book of Romans, we read all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. The whole first well, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Romans are Paul's demonstration of the reality that all have sinned and all are subject to the wrath of God. But don't forget, <laughs> don't forget, <laughs> you could read those two chapters and get depressed and worried, except don't forget that he began with I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed by this thing that I go around announcing. The good news. The power of God for salvation to everyone who follows the Ten Commandments. Sorry, I'm checking to see if you're noticing that I misquoted. <laughs> to everyone who does right. Well, no, because he's about to go over, go over and over and prove no matter who you are, whether you're a Gentile, and we all know what sinners the Gentiles are, or you're a Jew, a possessor of the word of God, you're, you're not any more obedient to the law because you have it. In fact, having it makes things worse for you because you should know better. But you're, you also are wrong and not righteous before God. So he doesn't say the good news is salvation, the power of God for salvation to everyone who does right. Because no one does right. So what would be good about that news? A uh, pastor in the States by the name of Timothy Keller, I read a book he wrote one time, and he says, you know, if all the Christian faith was was another list of things to do in order to get right with God, we don't need another one of those. We've got enough of those already, and none of them work. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. So we need to ask the question, salvation, how? And the answer is in this text, the righteousness of God revealed. <laughs> and the first part of that righteousness of God revealed scares us all to death, or should. But that's not all there is to it. How is the righteousness of God revealed? in a way that provides salvation from the righteousness of God. Well, we just need to read on in chapter 3. 
in the first half of chapter 3, he's proving to the Jewish people that them having the law of God has not made them righteous. And his conclusion is, in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, that word justified is a related, is, is the same word really as the word righteous. And it, so you could say this, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be righteousified. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, what was the point of giving us the law if it doesn't make us righteous? It's so that you'd know. You know that the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. You know what covet means? Want something that doesn't belong to you. is on the same list as thou shalt not commit murder. Well, I don't know about you, but personally, I think coveting is no big deal. Even now, I've been a Christian for 56 years, and even now, I think coveting is no big deal. God does not agree with me about coveting. It's on the Big Ten list. And I go around coveting and not even knowing I'm doing it. Oh, that, I'd like to have one of those. Jesus drove this home in, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, you've heard not to commit adultery. But I'm telling you, when you look at another man's wife with lust in your heart, that's the same thing. It just hasn't been carried out all the way. The problem's in you, not just what you do. Because you're ungodly, you produce unrighteousness. And, and Paul says, look, no matter how long you try or how hard you try, the Scripture has already revealed, he quoted that Scripture we already read, there's none righteous, not even one. That's in the Old Testament. Prophets. And he says, look, nobody has ever been righteousified, justified by keeping the law of God. That's never happened. It can't happen. You can't do it. And most of you aren't even trying. But now, verse 21, but now, but now. <laughs> These are the most fantastic words in the Bible, but now. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, after he announced you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, and here he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift. 
by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. This is the good news that is the power of God to salvation. Now, God did something. The righteousness of God is demonstrated and revealed and realized in the life of the man Jesus who lived in perfect obedience to God and to the law of God. The righteousness of God is provided as a gift to all who trust in the gift. There's nothing to do except to say, okay, all right, I'll have that. I'll have that. And this is the next two chapters of the book of Romans. Justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You see, in verse 24 here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly a satisfaction in His blood through faith. That was This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. He didn't jump right on wrath. He held off on wrath in order to provide the good news of the power of God to salvation from wrath. So, he says, the uh, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous, just, and justifier the one who makes righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. How does God remain just and forgive sin? That's a problem. That is a serious problem. You can't call a forgiving judge just. You can't call a judge who lets the criminal go for free righteous. How does God pull this off? The answer is the death of Jesus. He judges your sin and mine in the death of Jesus. The one who did not sin. The one of us. The one human being in the history of human beings who never once sinned. I can't even imagine what kind of life that would have been. I mean, I can sort of, I can say it. Never once sinned in, never once had a sinful impulse. You know, Jesus himself said, look, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, that's also sin. He never did that. 
boggles my mind. Can't figure out that. He never once sinned in thought or deed. And he died, suffered the penalty of sin. And God has substituted his death for yours. His death for the wrath that belongs to you. And so, in the revelation of his righteousness at the cross of Christ, the power of God to salvation is revealed. It's amazing. It's demonstrated by the life of Christ. It's provided by the death of Christ. It's assured by the resurrection of Christ. And it is received by faith. What does that mean? It is received by receiving it. That's all it means. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's not about how long-lasting your faith is. It's not, though faith lasts, but it's not about anything about your merit or qualities or things God found in you worth saving. There's nothing there to be found. It's all in the righteousness of Christ, which is applied to you when you simply receive it. When you say, it's okay with you if God applies this righteousness to you. You trust in it and not in anything else. This is, Paul is going to make argument after argument after argument going back to Abraham where the scripture says Abraham believed God, trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and so Abraham became righteous in his own right. No, it doesn't say that. It says his faith was credited as righteousness. How can God do that and be righteous because of the blood of Christ? That's how. That's the only way. And so Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, and you too. It's not just Abraham. This is always God's way. Always has been God's way. Always has been the way that glorifies God benefits us. So it's received by faith. If you look at chapter 4, verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered because, over because of our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Um, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 4, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? Who? The un, 
godly. You remember that's our problem in the beginning, yeah? The root of your unrighteousness is your ungodliness. Because you're not properly oriented to God and, you know, really you just don't even care about God. Because of that, you, you became unrighteous. And now, who is it that God justifies? Those people, those ungodly people. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I just want to take a second to turn to how do you handle the devil? This seems totally unrelated right now, doesn't it? But it's not. The devil is your accuser. The devil is the one who says, hey, you sinner. Who says to you, you can't possibly be a Christian and act the way you're acting. I'm pretty sure God doesn't want to have anything to do with people like you. Now, I'm, I just want to tell you, that accusation is constant. In fact, it's so constant, I think the devil can get you in the habit of it, and then he doesn't even have to show up. You do it to yourself. I know every day I behave in ways that are utterly inconsistent with faith in Christ. So when the devil accuses me, he doesn't have to lie. He can tell the truth about me in his accusation. How do you handle it? God justifies the ungodly. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. So I am happily counted a sinner, saved by grace as a gift, not because I cleaned up my act, not because even after I came to faith, my act has gotten righteous. No, my act is still really polluted all the time. I need Jesus just as bad today as I did that day when I was five years old and prayed with my mom to receive Christ. God justifies the ungodly. So when the devil comes along and says, you're not a Christian, look at how you're acting. You can say, I'm a Christian because of how I'm acting. Because I need Jesus still. And thanks for pointing out to me that this is inconsistent. I'm going to work on that too. The devil has nothing to hold over you except your sinfulness, <laughs> which he cannot hold over you if you are in Christ. So, sorry, that was a detour. What we're learning in the book of Romans, and we're going to have to stop and catch this list that's at 
you know, in the bulletin there, you could look that over because it's really good. And you could read in Romans 5 all that, the things on that list. What we're told here is, therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your body, here's what you do, present your bodies, your reasonable service of worship. Therefore, what's that about? It's about the good news. The good news, the power of God for salvation to those who, who what? Believe. Who simply trust this power of God revealed in Christ, imparted by Christ, imputed to you, credited to you. You know, when you stand before God and His judgment, if whatever, however that plays out. If, if someone asks you the question, why should you live, why should you have eternal life in heaven with God or in the new heaven and the new earth with God? Why should that be yours? There's only one answer to that question. And that answer is, well, I'm with Him. I'm with Him. I'm with Jesus. I'm in Jesus. I don't know if I'll even get asked the question because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ already. His, the, the credit for his sinless life has been added to my account. That's good news. That is really good news. And that is the thing comes before therefore in chapter 12. And we're going to have more to say about this next time. We didn't even get to everything I had planned for this time. You're probably surprised by that. Father, thank you for this amazing news of salvation in Christ. Lord, we just want to trust in it. We want to rest in it. We want to celebrate it. And Father, we want to live lives that celebrate it and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.